0: right, we've got a tough passage before us this morning. Let's pray uh, before we come to it. Father God, help us, we pray this morning, to understand your word. Father, we know that by ourselves, Father, we we don't get these things. So, Father, pray that you'd speak to us by your Spirit, through your word this morning, and encourage us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, living for Jesus, let's face it, can be hard, can't it? It can be a joy, as we were singing before, but it can also be very hard, Living for Jesus is hard, but speaking for Jesus can be even harder. I was recently hearing from a friend whose daughter stood up uh, in a conversation about the life uh, of the unborn, uh, in a conversation with her friends at school. Uh, Those people then told her they were no longer her friends, wouldn't talk to her. One of them later, uh, when no one was looking, held her hair back and punched her in the face because of what she'd said. Uh, that girl's now having to be homeschooled because she can't go <coughs> to, uh, back into school. There have also been countless cases over the last few years of street preachers being detained for preaching. Or even just quoting the Bible in the streets. That's some of their quotes aren't necessarily the places we go to first in the Bible. But that's what they're doing. They're, they're, they're quoting from the Bible. And that can have a, a chilling effect, can't it? They're normally released without charge, but the effect on the church can be quite chilling. And we all know the sneers, the eye rolls, the mockery that comes when we mention the Lord Jesus in certain company, either to our face or behind our backs. Speaking for Jesus is not easy. And my question this morning is what is gonna keep us going? What is gonna keep us speaking when speaking for Jesus gets hard? What are we gonna keep in our minds as we witness to the Lord Jesus, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family? John here, who wrote the book of Revelation, was writing to churches who needed to keep testifying, who needed to keep teaching and speaking about Jesus. We learnt in chapter 2 that one church had been slandered for their testimony to Jesus. They were forewarned by John that some of them would face prison and others of them would be killed for what they were going to say. Another church had had someone killed, Antipas, who Jesus describes there as his faithful witness. Another church in chapter 3 who have been thrown out of their synagogue for their testimony to Christ, rejected by their family and friends. What could the Lord Jesus, through John, tell them to keep them going, to keep them speaking for Jesus? What pictures could he paint to keep them faithfully testifying to their faith in him? And what can he tell us, two millennia on, that will keep us speaking for Jesus when it's hard? We have two headings this morning. First of all, temples and times. Let me read to you again, verses 1 and 2. Then I was given a measuring rod, like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given to the nations. And they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. The chapter starts with John being asked to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there. Now, the word there that we've got for temple um, usually refers to the holy of holies. It's like the centre of um, the, the temple in the Old Testament, straight there at right in the heart of the temple. And there's only one person who's allowed to go there. And that's the, the high great high priest. So the idea of measuring the temple, measuring the people who worship there, would be quite quick, wouldn't it? It'd be one. It gets a bit confusing. What is he doing? And also, having been told to do so, we're not told what the dimensions are. So we told to measure it, and then we're not told what he measures. Instead, we're told the story of two prophets who were murdered by a beast. More on that point later. So what's going on? Well, if you've been in any parts of our series in Revelation so far, it won't surprise you that what we have here has its roots in the Old Testament. It's a repeat of events from Ezekiel 40 to 48. There Ezekiel is told to measure a temple. And he sees a temple that is much bigger and more glorious than the one he's seen destroyed in the city in his day. The encouragement in Ezekiel's day is that God has not left his people. And that actually the best lie ahead. Something better was coming. It's best seen in the context of the rest of the book where God promises a new better David. A new better covenant. A new greater exodus. And he sort of tops it off with a new greater temple. Now we understand all those other things like David and, uh, and the covenant ought to be fulfilled in Christ. Strange then that we would treat the temple differently. Especially since Christ speaks of himself in such language. So uh, John chapter 2, 19 to 21, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body, or uh, John 1 14. and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Became flesh is the word tabernacle. It's like the tabernacle in the Old Testament, or Matthew twelve verse six. Speaking of himself, he says, "I tell you something greater than the temple is here." So, is he talking about measuring Jesus? Then is that what he's talking about? Well, not exactly. But he is talking about measuring Jesus' body, the church. Paul writes to the Corinthians Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you, plural, are that temple. He also writes to the Ephesians that they are a holy temple, a place where God dwells by his Spirit. Indeed, we've already met the imagery in Revelation where the ones who conquer are promised that they will become part of God's temple. That was in Revelation 3. But what's the point of measuring it? Why, why measure it? It's there. We don't measure lots of things in the book of Revelation. Well, measuring implies protection, care. God has got his church numbered, measured. In one sense, it's a safe place. He knows the boundaries and he guards them. He keeps those inside safe. We see this finally and ultimately in chapter 21, where dimensions are given, but of the New Jerusalem. When we see it, it's a perfect cube, the shape of the Holy of Holies that John wants to measure here. Could it be that actually those are the missing measurements for the temple? But there it's talking about the church, and the whole city is his temple, the New Jerusalem. But what well, then the outer court? You know, that was a bit different. The outer court wasn't to be measured. <clears throat> what about that one where it's trampled? Well, this is the hardest part of the whole passage, I think. So we'll get this over and done with near the beginning. But it's part of the temple, isn't it? The outer court, but it's not the Holy of Holies. And it's protected in one sense because it's part of the temple, but it's not protected from the trampling of the nations. I think given the context that's to follow in the rest of the chapter... It's best to view this as the church as it currently is on earth. The church, especially in Revelation and Hebrews, doesn't just comprise of Christians on earth, but all Christians on earth, all those who have died, believing in Jesus, the angels as well, all gathered around the throne. Or, Or in Hebrews, it's gathered around Mount Zion. The outer court, though, is that place that is being trampled. The inner temple is those who are home safe, safely away from it. Hence the martyred saints calling out from under the altar in chapter 6 in the heavenly temple. The outer court is safe, it's part of the temple, but it's the part that intersects with the world. And the world, instead of welcoming it, tramples on it. But what about the time in which it's trampled? Do you see that? We're told a specific period of time. It will be trampled for 42 months. That's the same as the 1,260 days, uh, which we meet in the re- uh, in the next verse, and also three and a half years, uh, which we'll meet elsewhere. The original is three, uh, three and a half years, and we meet it in Daniel 7, uh, we'll come to that in a minute. Now there are those who look at this as a literal three and a half year time period, and they sort of want to look back through history and try and find a period of time of three and a half years. So the temple desecration by a guy called Antiochus Epiphanes, that's three and a half years. Nero's persecution of the church in AD 64, three and a half years. The Jewish rebellion in AD 66, three and a half years. Hmm. Some people see it as a literal three and a half years in the future, so we don't know exactly when it is. Jesus' earthly ministry was about three and a half years. So it's quite difficult to sort of pinpoint one particular place. There are those who look for a literal understanding, but use the year for a day principle. So that would be one thousand two hundred and sixty years that we're talking about. Um, there are a thousand and one versions of this. This is the most most popular method historically, and it basically becomes a game almost of finding two events that are sort of one thousand two hundred and sixty years uh, apart. Um, of course, if that period ends in the future, you don't actually know when it starts until you get to the end of it. So it gets very complicated. Historically, it's been most often given as the dominance of the Roman Catholic Church before the Reformation. That was the sort of norm for that one. But the problem with all of these options is that you basically need a history degree, don't you, to get your head round it. And that surely can't be right. God has actually given us a book to understand, hasn't he? And it should be understandable in itself. It's my conviction that the Bible is understandable on its own terms. So in other words, if there was a malfunction on desert island discs and we ended up with just a Bible on a desert island, (laughs) then we should be able to basically read it from itself. We should be able to understand it without having to go to all these other different books. Now you may not need a history qualification, but you may need a maths one. I know we've got a lot of former maths teachers, so we should be all right uh, this morning. Here it's made slightly less difficult. Here's what it is. Here's those three and a half years on what they're all about. You take seven, which we see all the time in the book of Revelation, meaning complete, whole, perfect, and you divide it by two. There you go. And if my maths is right, that's three and a half. Three and a half. If we take seven years as being the whole of time, if you like, the years of perfect, whole, complete, then three and a half is half of all time. Now that sounds crazy. you ever heard of split in time in two? Something slightly sarcastic if you think about it. B.C. A.D. It's exactly what we've done. In our Bibles, there's the Old and New Testament. We split it in half. What event could possibly split history into two halves? Well, it's the coming of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? If that were the case, then the period in which we live now... Is that three and a half? It's the second half of history. Maybe not the exact number of years as the first half, but the second time, the second set, the second stage in history. The time from Jesus until the end, which fits with what we see and what we will see in future weeks. This is a period of time where the nations trample, but the prophets continue to prophesy, as we'll see. Where the world gloats over the destruction of believers but it ends with their vindication and resurrection. In the book of Daniel, where we first get this time period, it's mentioned in that time that the saints are given over to the hand of the beast. But it's also mentioned in Daniel 12. This is what it says, as a time of trouble such as there has never been since, a nation, since there was a nation until that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust on the earth shall awake come to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's the age that we live in. People turn to Christ. People coming to life spiritually. This is the age that we're in. This is the age the original readers lived in as well. The time that we're talking about is now. So what do we learn about it? Well, that's our second point. We've only got two points for, our second point. Let me read you verses three to 10. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the Earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their bones. If anyone would harm them, this is how they are doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky, that no rain may fall during the years of their prophesying. And they have the power over the water to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days... Some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse them a place to be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. We're introduced here to two characters. They're described as witnesses in verse 2. Olive trees in verse 3. lampstands in verse 3. And then prophets in verse 10. Witnesses we've met before in the book of Revelation. The word in Greek is martyrs. It's where we get our word martyr from. And it's used to describe Jesus in the opening chapters. It was also the same word that was used to describe antipaths who had died witnessing to the Lord Jesus. It doesn't at this point have the idea of someone who's going to die, like we have our word martyr. But it's clear why it becomes associated with that and what happens. Olive trees and lampstands are used in Zechariah chapter 4. There they seem to refer to a guy called Zerubbabel and a guy called Joshua. They were governor and high priest after the exile. So Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David and Joshua was a descendant of Aaron the high priest. And they are pictured standing in the temple that they were about to rebuild. The lampstands constantly supplied with oil from the olive trees that were there as well. We've already seen, though, lampstands in the book have been used to represent churches. Some have gone as far to suggest that the two lampstands of the churches in Revelation 2 and 3 would remain totally faithful to Christ. Though it seems unlikely with it going back to Zechariah before that. They're also pictured here as prophets. And if you think about it, if you read the language here, two quite specific ones, though sort of split between the two of them, they can stop rain, which sort of sounds a bit like Elijah, doesn't it, in 1 Kings 17. But they can also turn the water to blood and bring plagues, like Moses in Exodus 7 onwards. Indeed, the trumpets that we've been seeing in this section have reminded us of the plagues in Egypt. Moses and Elijah are the two that appear with Jesus at his transfiguration. They were sort of the prophets par excellence of the Old Testament. They were the ones that you would go to. And they were the only two in the Old Testament that God appeared to by then his glory passed before them. We actually had the verse before from Gareth, for Moses, I do not know who's going to do that. But Elijah has a similar experience. And here, these two lampstand prophet olive tree witnesses, they're described as prophesying throughout the passage. That's what they're doing, that's their job. So who are they? Well, they continue the interlude about the church that we started in chapter 10 last week. There, John, on behalf of the church, was told to prophesy to the nations. And here we see the church prophesying to the nations in the outer court of the temple, so to speak. They witness and prophesy. They're witnesses, which is why there are two of them. In the Old Testament, all testimony must be established by two or three witnesses. If you could have witnesses, you have to have more than one. And they prophesy. And notice here, this isn't about predicting the future. That can be part of prophecy. But it's not the heart, really, of what that's about. Their prophetic witness was in sackcloth, the clothes of repentance. Their power was plagues, the trumpet calls of repentance that we've seen through this section. Moses and Elijah, who they're modelled on, don't spend much time predicting the future, if you look at their ministries. Even with the great drought, Elijah doesn't just predict it, he's given power to start and stop it. The ministry of a prophet then is to speak God's message, to challenge the world with God's word. That's what Moses did with Pharaoh. That's what Elijah did with Ahab. And if you think back to both of them in those situations, they were not liked for it, were they? (laughs) And their ministry in this passage lasts that length of the three and a half years that we were talking about. They persevere. They go all the way through to the end. And whilst they enjoy a degree of protection. By the words of their mouth. They are persecuted. Persecuted by a beast who makes war on them. This picks up on Daniel 7. Where the horn of the beast makes war on the saints. Eventually these guys are killed by the beast. In the same place Jesus was killed. Now that could be in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Though the way it's described, it sounds more like Babylon, which we'll see as we go through the book is pictured as this place. They couldn't just be here to associate their deaths with Jesus' deaths. They will look remarkably similar. And do you notice that when they die, the world looks on approvingly? They make merry and swap presents. Well, sounds a bit like Christmas when I was reading through it. You know what I mean? It's like I always do a Christmas time. Oh, it's Christmas, they're so happy. And they deny them proper burial. This has happened through history to believers too. John Wycliffe, often called the morning star of the Reformation, and a Yorkshireman. Mm-hmm. After he died, his body was exhumed by the Pope, burnt, and his ashes were thrown into the River Swift in Lutterworth. Similar happened to Jan Hus's remains in Bohemia, one day Czech Republic, or Czechia as it's now called. Countless others who were burnt at the stake were denied proper burial. But that's not the end of the story. It sounds sad at that point, doesn't it? But have a look at verses eleven to thirteen. But after three and a half days, a breath of light from God entered them, and they stood upon their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. At the end of the three and a half days, we'll come back to that in a second, the prophet witness olive trees are resurrected and ascend into the clouds. Just as Jesus' body lay dead for three three days, and he ascended into the clouds, they follow in the path of their master. Three and a half days might be a reference back to Jesus' body, three-day wait in the tomb, or more likely another way of referring to that same period of time that we're talking about. Three and a half in the same passage is quite coincident if that was uh, just there. In the midst of so much symbolism, meeting three and a half won't be a coincidence, will it? And a tenth of at the city falls and 7,000 die. Disaster ensues for the city. A lot of people die, the right number, that's seven there. But most of the city remains standing for now. So if all this is telling us about the church, what is it telling us? Well, it's telling us three things. Number one is that our role as the church is prophetic witness in the world. This really is an extension of last week's point, but it's because this is the same part of the book, it's the same interlude, the same section, The role of the church in the world is to witness prophetically to the world. That doesn't mean we'll go about predicting the future, that's not what these guys are doing. But it does mean, like them, we'll speak God's truth to the world, to the small, to the great. We call people to repent, to turn to God, to turn from their sin, and believe in the Lord Jesus. We call them to, to take that offer of the forgiveness of sins and new life in the Spirit is the role of the church. We are witnesses, we are prophets, we are those kings and priests thinking back to Zechariah. And we are to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And note that there's an optimistic note here that was missing at the end of chapter 9. It says in verse 13, the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. You see the trumpets, those disasters we saw by themselves, produced nothing. But the preaching and faithful witness of the church, even to death here, does do something. When we speak and back it up with our lives, amazing things happen. So we are to speak God's truth to the world. We are to share the good news about Jesus. That's number one. But secondly, we are to take into account that the world at large will hate us for it. On the whole, we will not be thanked for sharing the gospel with the world. Here the witnesses were slain in the streets, and the people rejoiced. Jesus himself said in John 15 verse 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. John fifteen twenty. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Or John 16 verse 2, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. All these things are recorded by John, who wrote Revelation. The job of witnesses is something that we share, we're in it together, but it's not easy. Think back to those people at the start, the girl who got punched, the street preachers who got arrested. And again, I have to admit, some of the passages they chose to preach on might not be the passages you'd start to share the gospel. But when it's getting to the point where the police can decide which parts of the Bible we can and can't preach... That's a difficult setting, isn't it? I mean, to call someone a sinner might be deemed offensive. To talk about hell might seem disturbing. To talk about Jesus as the only Son of God, the only way to heaven, some people would think that's intolerant. How long before those things were not able to do openly? But in our time, that same time, the gospel progresses. It has done for 2,000 years. Today, more people will hear the gospel in more places than have ever heard it before. The gospel progresses, but as it, do, as it does, so too does persecution. So there's tribulation for the church. In fact, if you think about it down through history, the two go hand in hand, don't they? Growth in the church leads to persecution, and persecution leads to growth where we see faithful witnesses not backing down, even when it's costing them their lives. It's not the case that the church has grown most when it's been easiest. In fact, it's generally the exact opposite, isn't it? Tertullian, an early Christian who will look at one Sunday on evening before Christmas, he wrote this, the blood of the martyrs, witnesses, is the seed of the church. Mm. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The world will hate us, Persecution is expected, but that's not always a bad thing. Actually the gospel goes forward, that's the second thing, the world will hate us. But thirdly, in the end we will be vindicated. The final trumpet is coming, we see that in verses 15 to 18. Then we see the kingdom will finally come with power. The kingdom on earth will one day be the kingdom of Christ, and he will reign forever. And our response, pictured by the elders there, is to bow down. And worship. The nations raged, in verse 18, like in Psalm 2, but the time has come now for God's judgment. The time for the dead to be judged, it says, for the rewarding of his servants and for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. This really is the final trumpet, this really is end, capital E. And the appearance of God's temple throne room marks off the end of this section, as it did after the seven seals when the altar is seen. As it will do after seven balls of wrath in chapter 16. All of these are accompanied by thunder and lightning and earthquakes. The end has come. But the end of the story for the church is resurrection and vindication. We saw that back in verse 11. But after three and a half days a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood upon their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven say, come up. And they went up to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies watched them. We will rise and meet the Lord in the air. That's what we're told in 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll descend back to earth again. But before we do, we'll follow the pattern of Christ. Ascending through the clouds. We died with him. We rise with him. We'll ascend like him. And we'll spend eternity with him. Isn't that a great thought? That's how it ends for us. And this is an encouragement to believers to keep witnessing. To keep proclaiming the gospel. Because in the end, we will rise like him. Whatever happens to us in this life, our eternal life is safe. Our resurrection is secure. The world here thought that it had won. That it finally shut up those meddlesome believers. But in the end, we win. In the end, it's we who rise and go to be with Christ. It's we are shown to be in the right. Not so that we can sort of spend eternity feeling smug. That's not the point. But so that we can endure being constantly told that we're wrong here on earth. One day every eye shall see that we were in the right to follow Jesus. That we were right to preach the gospel. That we were right not to compromise the truth. And that actually, that we were trying to be loving. That was actually the loving thing that we were trying to do. So if it's hard to keep speaking for Jesus, keep that in your minds. Keep your eyes on eternity. Keep your eyes on where we're going. And keep your eyes on Christ who endured all this as well from a contrary world. He spent his life being told he was wrong. He was spat at and crucified. But at the end of those three days rose again. (coughs) And so will we. So let's pray that God would give us the strength to keep living for Jesus and to keep speaking for him. Let's pray. Father God, we we admit we find it hard in our world, Father, we find it difficult. Father, we want to love people, we want to share the good news with them, Father, but it's difficult. So, Father, in those difficult situations, keep us uh, heavenly minded, Father, keep us focused on what is to come. Again, not so that we can be smug, but, Father, so that we can endure. Mm -hmm. Father, keep us faithfully preaching. Help, Help us to be like those faithful witnesses. And to keep preaching, to keep going, to keep prophesying. And Father, thank you that we have that wonderful future with the Lord Jesus to look forward to. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.